Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Each week, we explore the beliefs that shape our world, our politics, and our culture. January 15th and January 23rd, the Republican primary field running for president in the 2024 elections shifted dramatically. Several candidates dropped out after former President Trump swept the first place spot with nearly a 30 point advantage. For Trump, he only got 24 percent of the caucus in 2016 and he became the Republican nominee. He got 52 and a half percent last night. That puts him on a pretty sizable path. And it's also an answer to something that has been persistently hovering around Trump. Do your legal problems create political problems? And the answer so far is not only no, but heck no. That's journalist Major Greg Garrett on the CBS Morning News the day after the caucuses. He's asking, like many others, why do people continue to support the former president, especially when there are alternatives? And as the legal troubles continue to mount, courts in Maine and Colorado ruled that Mr. Trump is disqualified from appearing on the primary ballot because of his leading role in the failed insurrection on January 6, 2021. That event sought to disrupt and prevent the peaceful transition of power after the 2020 elections. The Trump campaign has appealed to the Supreme Court and is awaiting a decision. But he also faces multiple indictments, including 34 felony charges in the state of New York in connection with hush money payments to an adult film star. Why, in light of all of this, does he keep winning, especially among the religious? To offer insights, we begin this week with Dr. Ryan Burge. He's a political scientist and a professor who studies how religion and faith influence civic behavior. It's a subject of his writing and research. He's authored four books, including 20 Myths About Religion and Politics in America and The Great De-Churching. Our conversation begins with this question. The headlines suggest religious voters are overwhelmingly supporting Mr. Trump. What's going on in Iowa? Iowa is not a religious state. Like, we need to stop thinking of it that way. It's actually become a lot less religious in the last 10 years or so. And people have this weird perception. It's like all these evangelicals hang out in Iowa. It's like, not really. They're not even evangelicals. They're like Lutherans. So is it that we're using the wrong language, Ryan? Yeah. What are we talking about? Because faith mm-hmm. is a big deal in Iowa. Yeah. So, so how do you talk about it? I think what you're seeing in Iowa is you're the rise of the cultural Christian. Religion is not top of mind when they think about issues of gender and sexuality and abortion, but they lean back on, I'm a cultural conservative, which is just this generic, like, mass of ideas about, you know, things like gender and race and sexuality and things Mm -hmm. like that. But they're not actively going to church, which is the future of the Republican Party, by the way. The future Mm -hmm. of the Republican Party is not a whole bunch of church going 
Republicans. It's a bunch of people who like the idea of religion but don't participate in it. They're they're culturally religious, they're tribalistically religious, but they're not religious in the sort of like actively going to a house of worship on a regular basis. I think Trump is actually the ideal candidate for the current Republican Party because he can sort of like nod towards Christian conservatives and say things about transgender and abortion that they go, yeah. But he also will say something like, yeah, but on abortion, I think it should be a state's rights issue. I think that tells the modern Republican Party. I know the religious right is a smaller group. They're a vocal group, but most votes do not come from the abolitionist abortion people who want to make abortion completely illegal and criminalize it for the doctor and the woman. How are you seeing religion, faith, spirituality percolating in the discourse yeah, it, it, it's like religion's almost become a bumper sticker. So you, you hear candidates use slogans like faith and freedom, right? What you're seeing is a rise, especially amongst Republicans and the share of people who self-identify as evangelical but go to church less than once a year now. 27% of self-identified evangelicals go to church never or seldom. So they like what those words mean as like sort of like a totem or like a branding. But they don't really get the other part of religion. Religion's always been understood to be a corporate worship thing. What do you mean by that? What's corporate worship mean? Yeah. So, you know, almost every religion on earth has a gathering as part of what you do as part of the religion. But if you look in America, what's happened is religion has become almost a cultural identifier, a tribal marker not really an embodied experience where you go to see other people. And if you look at the social science, the part of religion that is the objectively empirically best in terms of building social capital and increasing your psychological well-being and building connections and tolerance and all these things comes from the gathering together part. And the worst parts of religion are the, the, the tribalness of it, the, the political and cultural identifier of the whole thing. So almost what we've done in America is stripped religion of the best parts of it and left the worst parts of it. And now a lot of people are rejecting what religion has become because what religion has become is really the worst parts of what religion has always been. Human beings are naturally predisposed to create us versus them. And religion has been part of that larger tribalism. The part of religion that sort of mediates that is when you sit in the pew next to someone who looks different than you, thinks different than you, votes different than you. Because there's this this great theory in social science called social contact theory, which says that if you know someone personally of an out group, you become more tolerant of that group, generally speaking. Ryan, we're going to talk about a lot of things in this conversation. I didn't ask you to source your data. Where are you getting your numbers from? Yeah, so two major sources. One's called the General Social Survey. It's been happening uh, every year, other years since 1972, uh, funded by the American government through uh, the National Science Foundation. The other is the Cooperative Election Study, which began in 2008. Uh, It's housed at Harvard University. And uh, each uh, election year, they have 60,000 respondents. So an incredibly large sample that helps us get into like the the nitty-gritty details of American religion in these smaller groups. The nuns 
are the biggest story in American religion. They're 30% of all Americans now. The second biggest story, without a doubt, is the nons, the non-denominationals. In 1972, less than 3% of all Americans identified as non-denominational. Now it's 15% of all Americans identify as non-denominational. If you look at every Christian family, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, Lutheran, Presbyterian, the only group that's growing over the last decade is non-denominational Protestant Christianity. It will be the future of Protestant Christianity in this country. We're going to have a, think about 30% of Americans are nuns and 15% Americans are nons. That's almost half of all Americans in those two groups. If you look at a lot of those congregations, they actually are doing a better job at diversity than most of the historic denominations in American society. So if you look at like Joel Osteen's church, who is probably the most popular preacher in America in Houston, Texas, Lakewood Church. That's the way our God is. He exceeds our expectations. It may look like that sickness is permanent. That addiction is never going to change. You'll never see your family restored. It's too late. The problem too big. Can I encourage you? You're in the middle of a miracle. God already has the solution. It's already lined up the good breaks, the healing, the right people. Don't believe the lies that you've seen your best days and live from a place of faith, a place of trust. They pan the crowd with the camera sometimes. Yeah. It's an incredibly diverse congregation. And now that obviously is not the typical church in America, but there are green shoots of racial diversity. But diversity goes beyond race. Obviously, it's a very important part. But even economic diversity, there was a team who analyzed 45, 45 million Facebook accounts looking for places where people interact with other people who are on different ladder parts of the economic ladder. The one spot where they found a lot of mixing was houses of worship. And one of the strongest predictors of you moving up the economic ladder is personally knowing someone who is above you in the socioeconomic spectrum. And that's exactly what religion has provided in American society for hundreds of years. I just read Titan, which is about John Rockefeller. When he got so rich, he would never leave his house for any social event except to go to his Baptist church. And they ask him why. And he said, because it's my only opportunity to talk to a blacksmith or a mechanic during the week. Mm. And that is the kind of mixing that religion should provide. It's not doing as much as it should, but there's more opportunity there than our workplaces, our schools, and our homes, and our neighborhoods, because those are so economically segregated now. Mm -hmm. Who are they? Yeah. So the one thing that I would say is it's almost impossible to characterize this group because of their diffused nature. The one thing we know is they're, to me, they're the most democratic, little d democratic religious outgrowth in American history because it's almost always bottom up. A lot of these churches started with a guy in his basement with almost no theological training, got himself together with three or four other young families in the area, and all of a sudden they outgrew the basement. Now they're in a, in a movie theater or a community center, and then five years later they got a 1,000 people. These are, they're not top down, they're bottom up. They're, they're like, it's almost like social media, right? Where you can build your own little empire on social media by being interesting and charismatic and innovative. And now it's become almost professionalized where these guys read the same literature, look at the same curriculum, and really want to build a church that is evangelical, 
and its orientation, almost all non-denoms are evangelical in terms of their theological orientation. Um, they don't have female pastors. They don't um, do same-sex weddings. They they worship in a very evangelical way. So you'd almost see they look almost like Southern Baptist in in theological terms. But they're also very locally focused. That's a really important part of this conversation. These non-denoms do not build missionary networks that go outside their local community, their local county. So they have tremendous impact in their local area, but almost no impact in any area outside their city that they're in because they just don't have the capacity nor the desire really to kind of have a global impact like denominations have had for decades. You said that some leaders of non-denominational houses of worship are sharing liturgy, that they are sharing notes, that they're evangelicals. Yes. What's interesting is there's actually a startup culture in non-denominationals now, almost like in Silicon Valley where they have these church planting networks is what they're called. One's called ARC, the Association of Related Churches. There's one called Acts 29. What they do is you actually have to apply. You go through a whole vetting process, not just you, but also your spouse, to make sure you're a suitable person to plant a church in their network. And then you go through training, and then they give you seed money, almost like you're doing venture capital to raise money to start the church, and then the expectation is that once your church gets its legs underneath it, gets financially solvent, then you will give a certain percentage of your offering back to the network that goes then to future churches, almost like repaying the investors that invested in you to begin with. So it's become like this sort of quasi-denominations that are not really denominations but have a lot of the characteristics, and this funding scheme has actually worked really, really well. The ARC plants over 300 churches a year now across America, and they've been some of the most successful churches in America. We started talking about the Iowa caucuses and that Donald Trump is not a top-down but a bottom-up candidate. What we know is that non-denominational evangelicals look like Southern Baptists politically, which means they're Republicans. If they're white especially, they're overwhelmingly Republican, probably 80, 85 percent are Republicans. But what's really fascinating is it's not coming from the pulpits. That's something really, really important. The SBC used to be uh, a communication channel to get the message out to 15, 16 million Southern Baptists 15 years ago. You use their networks and their state associations to get your political message out about abortion or same-sex marriage or whatever. Those networks don't work as well anymore because those denominations are crumbling. Non-denominationals are so diffused, they're bottom-up. There's no one person you can talk to that then spreads that message to 10 or 15 million non-denominationals like you could with the SBC back in the 2000s. So what's happened, I think, is social media has really become the channel through which these messages are are perpetrated. And these non-denom pastors are very careful about not being political from the pulpit because non-denominational churches, their reason to be is because they want to grow. And a really bad way to grow is talk about politics because politics is divisive. It'll turn off part of your audience. You talked about it being a growing trend in cities around the country. I think non-denominationals are going to continue to grow because young people are convinced that institutions are bad. And if you think about what Donald Trump is, by the way, to kind of close the loop on politics, Donald Trump is the anti-political candidate. He never really liked the Republican Party. He actually fought with the Republican Party a lot in 2016, and even now. He's still fighting with the Republican Party. These non-denoms, whole thing is we don't have the institutional baggage. We don't have all those rules and all that history and all that scandal that ties us up. We're fresh. We're new. We're different. It's this, this general idea that we should reject 
banks, unions, the media, religion, politics. We should try something different. And I think what that's left us with, though, is lots of people understanding that they they aren't happy. They don't feel spiritually fulfilled. They don't feel socially fulfilled. They don't feel politically fulfilled. They just feel an unease, and they don't really know why when a lot of the institutions that used to give our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents meaning in life have been whittled down to almost nothing. And so now there's no third space is what we call it. First space is home. Second space is work. What's a third space, which is just a social space you go to with your friends to hang out and have a good time. You know, church is part of that, but also bowling leagues, the Elks, the Moose. So what is that new third space going to be? So I see and I hear you um, kind of observing that trend of leaving institutions. I see third spaces growing. Do you think non-denominational churches are third spaces? I think they can be, and I think they're trying to be. What I hear you saying is this resistance to institutions leads people to reorganize and along the way create uh, new institutions, new organizations, new ways of being, and some will fail, some will thrive. In some ways, isn't that just the story of faith and religion in America? And when we look at the arc of America's religious pluralism and its history, is this really new? I think in some ways it's it's very old. I mean, if you look back in American history, the Baptists and the Methodists basically got their start by giving young preachers 20 bucks and a horse, say, go west and start a church and don't come back. Uh, that's exactly what we're seeing right now with non-denominational churches. Is, it's is church planting. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. It's church planting just in a different form. But I think the difference, though, is I don't think we've ever been as anti-institutional as we are right now. Mm. You know, we were, we're rejecting every structure that built American society. And I think the other, the other thing that's really important about this conversation is non-denominationals are fundamentally different, and here's why. Because they don't really care about impacting the, the, the global community with their faith. If you look at the Baptists and the Methodists, they spent hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of years building up missionary networks all over the world to impact the world with their faith. These non-denoms don't seem to care that much about those things. So they're really good if a local family has a fire and loses everything. They are almost completely incapable of helping if there's a tsunami in Southeast Asia. That's the fundamental difference. Religion in America has always tried to have its tendrils all across the globe. And this new movement really just doesn't seem that concerned with those things. I'm talking with Dr. Ryan Burge. He is an associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. Burge's attention to religion in America is also a personal vocation. For nearly 17 years, he served as a pastor in a small church affiliated with the American Baptists. Our conversation continues after this short break. Stay with us. I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. 
We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back. I'm Umbreen Khan. And if you're just joining, I'm talking with Dr. Ryan Burge, an associate professor of political science at Eastern Illinois University. Before the break, Burge described the rise of the cultural Christian and the decline of participation in denominational worship, particularly among those who identify as Republicans. But he says that people leaving church, while it might be the biggest story in American religion, it's not the only one. I believe the growth of Christianity in the world is not in the United States. That's that's actually the biggest reason, like the the, the United Methodist Church is having a schism. Yeah, is be, is because the the fastest growth in the United Methodist was in Africa, and Africa is it, it's a conservative style of Methodism that is not in favor of same sex marriage. You got American United Methodists who are declining. But have more money. They're the ones funding the growth in Africa. But Africa's got the actual growth, the actual people in the pews. And how do you live in that world with that schism? And you're seeing this in the Anglican Church. You're seeing it in the Catholic Church. These churches are having a hard time squaring the circle of where is the locus of power in our denomination, in our tradition? Is it in the United States, which has been for hundreds of years, or is it shifting somewhere else? And how do you give up power willingly in an appropriate, thoughtful way? Or renegotiate. Yeah. I mean, it yeah. sounds like, and that's that's part of what you've been describing. I want to bring it back to race for a second. And I want to drill down on religious identity um, and race. It's something that you and I have talked about over the years, but specifically with the nuns, which is a group that you have spent a lot of time following and studying. And the, again, those are the folks that do not affiliate. This is very different from the non-denoms or non-denominationals. I got to stop saying that. That's something I heard growing up. Um, the the drill down for me on the trend of the rise of the nuns, the unaffiliated and those who do not identify as white. What are you seeing happening? Because it used to be that that wasn't the case. Yeah. So, you know, it used to be 15 years ago that white folks were way more likely to be non-religious than non-white folks. Mm -hmm. But what you've seen over the last 15 years is the share of African-Americans who are nuns today is exactly the same as the share of white people who are nuns today. So they, they've risen from 20% to 34% African-Americans have in just the last 14 years. But what's really interesting to me is 
if you look at the distribution of the type of nuns, so we there's three types, atheist, agnostic, and nothing in particular. So most nuns are nothing in particular, which means they're not atheist or agnostic, but they're also not Protestant or Catholic or Muslim either. They're just nothing. They reject religion and, and atheism at the same time. If you look at African-Americans, 90% of them who are nuns are nothing in particular. Okay. There are almost no black atheists or agnostics in America compared to the white community. So even when non-white people leave religion, they do it differently than white people do. White people are totally cool embracing the atheist you know, moniker and everything that goes along with that. Um, African-Americans are not. They, we will not, I don't think in my lifetime, see a huge contingent of black atheists in the United States like you're seeing a lot of white atheists in the United States. So I think that's something to watch is like how do you negotiate these new spaces? What do they mean? Who is welcoming to us and who is not? And you're already seeing that happening right now is people want to leave religion, but they don't want to embrace those other identities either because of what they mean on the other side. And I think it begs the question into kind of listening into those spaces more deeply, like what Absolutely. and why, so that we're operating with um, kind of more understanding than maybe just that which we have from our own uh, lived experience. But how does that manifest from what you see in terms of party identification with Republicans and Democrats? Is that is that is there any link between the Democratic Party's loss of black voters? Yeah, so that's an important story that's that's really going to play out in 2024, which is African-Americans used to be the most loyal voting bloc for the Democrats. Over 90% of them vote Democrat in a typical election. But what we're seeing in the data is you're seeing African-Americans are not so wed to the Democratic Party anymore. They're more likely to embrace that independent label. Now, a lot of independent black people still vote for Democrats, but they don't label themselves as Democrats, which I think is part of this larger movement amongst the African-American community to distance themselves from the historic understanding of where African-Americans live in religious and political space. Religiously, they've always been seen as, oh, they're overwhelmingly black Protestants. They go to black churches and all the things that go along with that. We're seeing more and more black people walk away from that moniker and that affiliation. We're also seeing more and more African-Americans walk away from the political uh, connection between African-Americans and the Democratic Party, I think it's part of this larger movement in American society to sort of reject the historical ties that your parents and grandparents had to certain institutions and certain political parties. Has the the source data that you're kind of digging into, is that teasing out some of the answers? Yeah, so if you actually look at the data, the type of African-American who's left the Democratic Party faster are those who now identify as nuns. So the ones who left religion also left the Democratic Party at the same time. So it's hard causally to figure out, you know, what's the chicken and the egg there, which one led to the other. But the data gives this sense of it's people rejecting these historical connections in concert. My parents were black Protestant Democrats who, you know, always voted for guys like Joe Biden. I am going to take a step away from both the church and the political persuasion of my parents and grandparents. I wonder if that's part of a larger movement amongst the younger generation to sort of step back and say, wait a minute, why are we this? Why do we vote for that? Maybe we should rethink all those things. And if those things happen in concert, 
that can create a completely different political environment in 15 or 20 years and all the old assumptions about how people vote based on their race and their gender and their religion is going to change because people are reevaluating who they are and the ties they had to their past. There's a lot happening in 2024. Are there any big moments other than the ones that we've talked about that you're going to be paying attention to? Oh, man, I just think the continued destruction of denominations is something we can't overstate. You know, it used to be denominations ran this country, you know, the United Methodists, the Episcopalians, and and then moving to the Southern Baptists. And now how do we continue to coexist as a bottom-up culture? You know, where everyone kind of has their own little fiefdom and their own little fandom and their own little empire they've built on Twitter or TikTok or whatever it is. How what binds us together? What's the meta narratives that hold us together? And I don't know how we how we navigate that new reality of a bottom up culture when we've been top down denominationally led, you know, for almost all of our our history. I'm going to push back just a little bit being a member of a community that wasn't part isn't part of those dominant denominations yeah. or that segment of society. Are you potentially just making a little bit too much about denominations and mm. American identity? The mm. breakup of the big denominations, shifting from top down to bottom up, what's a positive that comes from that? Oh, I think it's people can find their people, right? Like you can find people who are really like you. Not where you have to negotiate your identity to be like someone else. You can find a group of people, either online or in person, who you are a lot alike on a lot of major issues in your life. So you can really find people who you resonate with on a deeper level. The problem with that, though, is you got to move that from an online space to an in-person space. There's tons of data now that says the online community is not real community. It doesn't generate a lot of the benefits that we appreciate in a face-to-face, you know, getting together environment. So I think that's the challenge is you get to find people who are just like you, but can you build a community in the real world of those people like you? But at the same time, if you find – and this is really the danger – if you find people – and that you're seeing this on the fringes of both sides, that you're seeing conspiracy theories rise up on both sides. Because if you find people who are just like you, they just reinforce what you already think about the world, and they don't challenge what you think about the world. And it can send you in these weird spirals on the far right and the far left. So I think it's that that's the value of what the bottom-up has provided. It's allowed us to think, I'm not alone, but we also need to understand that we need to be in spaces where we're challenged, where there are people who are different than us politically, racially, economically, socially. You have to do both at the same time. And I'm worried that we're finding our people, but not finding people different than us and challenging us. You need both in your life. Ryan Birch, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. Ryan Burge's analysis of the rise of the non-denominational congregations as a force in Republican politics and around the country comes through in Jeff Charlotte's most recent book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Charlotte describes the encounters he had on a bi-coastal road trip in search of answers, wanting to understand what's happening inside the MAGA movement that goes beyond former President Trump. When we return, we listen to an excerpt from his interview with producer Kimberly Winston. You're listening to Inspired by Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. 